0: There's a book, it's called Stamped in the Beginning, uh, by someone named Ibram X. Kendi. And uh, in this book, Kendi writes about uh, someone who was enslaved back in the late 1600s, early 1700s. His name was Denmark Vesey. So the difference between uh, Denmark Vesey and other people who were enslaved at the time is that Denmark Vesey was able to read and write. Okay? And so uh, this is what Kendi says in his book. He says, Vesey likely spent time teaching, motivating, and encouraging fellow enslaved blacks and challenging the racist ideas they had consumed, perhaps regularly reciting the biblical story of the Israelites' deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And I think about that. I think about Vesey, and I think about Vesey talking to other people who were enslaved and in bondage and telling them what freedom looks like, especially freedom in Christ. You see, during those times, when you talked about freedom in Christ and freedom in baptism, it actually meant freedom. It didn't mean like, oh, I'm spiritually free. It meant that you were free. Well, Vessi actually posed a problem, right? He posed a, a problem for people who were owners of other people and, and put them in bondage, right? Because those people who were owners, they, um, they were, quote-unquote, good Christians, right? And as, quote-unquote, good Christians, uh, how do they go ahead and tell the people that they own that they're free, But then, how do they keep them in bondage? Because if they really went free, what would happen is they would lose their livelihood. See, these good Christians cared more about their money than they did about other human beings or about Christ, right? And so what they did is they took the Bible and they twisted it and interpreted it for their own needs. Now, when has that ever happened before, right? That never happens, But that's what they did, and they did it to the point that they brought it to the state legislator in Virginia and had the state legislator ratify this new type of theology. In fact, this is what the state legislator said. Uh, It said the gross bestiality and rudeness of African manners and the variety of strangeness of their languages and the weakness and shallowness of their minds render it in a manner impossible to make any progress in their conversion. So basically... What's happening here is the owners are saying, uh, yeah, we have people who are enslaved and in bondage, and yeah, normally baptism means that they would get to go free, but we're afraid to let that happen because they're obviously inferior to the Caucasian race. That's basically what they're saying. And the next part is incredibly important because this next part affects us. Basically, what they started to say to people like Denmark Denmark Vesey and other people who were enslaved is they start to say, hey, there is freedom in Christ, there is absolutely freedom in Christ. It just isn't going to happen for you here on earth. It's going to happen when you go to heaven. That's when you're going to have freedom in Christ. So you will stay in bondage here, but know that spiritually speaking, you're going to be free. Now, why is that so important? It's so important because that is the predominant American Christian theology, which we still live by today. We still live by the idea that freedom is not a physical freedom, that freedom is a spiritual Freedom. In fact, we preach about, uh, I preached about this before. Have, have any of you heard me talk about vertical Christianity? Yeah. A few of you? Thanks for saying that, because well, at first there was people were like, no. And I was like, but I talk about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> vertical Christianity, I'm going to say it one more time. Uh, what we've done is we've simplified Christianity, right? We, we've, we've taken this white, uh, you know, owner's mentality, and we've said Christianity isn't about real freedom or changing systems of oppression. What Christianity is about is us sitting here on earth. And if we do everything right, if we follow the right morals, if we read the Bible the right way, if we do all the things we should do where we follow the Ten Commandments, then we are going to go up and have our freedom in heaven, right? But should we do it wrong, then we're going to go down and we're going to go into the depths of hell. And so Christianity is no longer about these systems or changing things or journeying with Christ. It's all about a transaction. Am I doing enough to where I get my freedom in heaven? And that started with white slave owners who didn't want the people they enslaved to go free. That should bother us. Now, it would be irresponsible for me to say it's the only reason. There are other factors that, that create this vertical Christianity that I talk about, but it would also be irresponsible if I didn't say that we're influenced by people in the 16th and, or the, uh, and 1700s who wanted to keep people in bondage. We are. So, as a staff, we started talking about this. And we started talking about it I don't know, about three years ago now, and we said, you know what? Uh, We are a church that that recognizes that we are absolutely reading our scripture through a a white supremacist kind of lens. What do we do about this? And as a staff, we came together and we said, we need to make one of our values the value of anti-racism. This is what we have to do as a church. And and we made this value not saying that we've arrived or we're there, but we made the value saying that, you know what, this is something that we will have to work towards. It's something that will make us uncomfortable. It's something that's going to be hard work. It's something that we're not going to get right but we have to continue to pursue it and I want to read to you this value understanding racism means that our church must be aware of how race and racism affects the lived experience of people of color and how people participate often unknowingly in acts and attitudes that have a negative impact on people groups we follow the example of Jesus Christ who didn't treat people equally but rather equitably based on their lived experiences within society and we prayerfully strive to do the same Now a story that I tell often is I tell uh, about four years ago when we decided to become an LGBTQIA affirming church and we said that the the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way Jesus Christ uh, lives his life compels us to be that. And when we said that about four years ago, we watched a lot of people walk out the door and we watched a lot of people who were supporting our church just stop supporting it. And from that point forward, we became solely dependent on us, this little community here, to financially keep this church going and we powered through and, and we've grown and here's the thing about 18 months later we said we also want to be this anti-racist church and you know what happened almost as many people walked out the door almost as many people left almost as many people stopped giving you want to know why because people don't like to be made uncomfortable and the bottom line is I had plenty of people come up to me and come up to other people on staff or other leaders in our church and say hey um, you should know that you're not preaching the gospel what you've become is just a political organizer that's what you've become And I get that because We are so entrenched in a white Western way of reading scripture that when we hear Jesus say something like this, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Or when Jesus quotes Isaiah in Luke 4 and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. When we hear those things, we say to ourselves, that's wonderful. I love it. And what Jesus is really saying there is that I have a spiritual freedom. And because I have a spiritual Spiritual freedom, it's about me and Jesus making sure that we have this personal relationship and it works out the right way, right? And if I have a spiritual freedom, then really Christianity is more about how I deal with my coworkers than it is about changing any kind of systems or anything like that. Why aren't you preaching more about how I can help my coworkers become Christians, right? Do we see how it goes back to that vertical Christianity? And that's what we heard. And I hear it too. I'm there too. I read through that lens too because, it's funny, I read about freedom in Christ and I don't think about literal freedom and then I started writing this down and it's so important I want to read it to you, right? I don't read it as literal freedom, but then all of a sudden I'm writing hmm, is it possible that Jesus someone who was oppressed by an empire was born into captivity and had to flee to Egypt whose families knew generations of exile and occupation, who grew up among the lynched bodies of his countrymen hung from crosses along highways, who watched generational land taxed into the hands of foreigners religious leaders in the pockets of the empires, and the representatives and political leaders beholden to those whose fortune came from plunder of war, was actually talking about literal freedom from oppression? Is that possible? (laughs) My guess is yes. (laughs) That is my guess. But but the privilege, like myself, we don't want to read it that way. We don't. Because the truth of the matter is colonization is real. What happened in the 1699-1700s in response to Denmark Vesey is still happening today. And maybe it's not about uh, uh, states and and cities and, and putting people in literal bondage, but there's still a colonization that takes place that says there is a Western privileged way of living life and it's the right way to live life. And it pervades our Christianity. When we read our scripture and we think about a literal freedom, right? All of a sudden people go, well, that's unbiblical, well, what's unbiblical about it? it? It was always a spiritual freedom. Well, it was a spiritual freedom for you, who lives in privilege and you know, grew up in a place of privilege, yeah. But what about the people hearing it at the time, right? We have to start to look in a new lens. Michelle Kay, who's an immigrant from Singapore, she went to Cambridge University in England, and then she went to Duke University here. She has this beautiful essay that she wrote, uh, and it's called this. It's called The Decolonialist Thesis, and she describes the way that colonization not only works in our churches, but, but today in our times. And she says this, she says, it's in the movement of a dangerous gift, and it's transmitted from the White West to the rest. Modern colonization says we have the good, and we will give or teach or sell it to you. Modern colonization is salvation through this gift from your prior self. Then she continues, she says, Colonization continues, in fact, whenever bright young men and women from all over the world decide to cap off their educations by going on a pilgrimage to pinnacles of Western civilization. When they dedicate themselves to Western canon and walk in the shadows of Gothic cathedrals and imperial facades and learn that this is the good life. In other words, it doesn't happen these days not by strength of arms or power of states, but by the captivation of the eyes, the training of the taste, the unwritten rules of thumb that we learn everywhere, without even knowing it. Colonization is far from over. It's all over. It is perhaps the most powerful set of forces in the entire modern world. I think it's true right here in our own community as well. How many people were here last week? Last week was pretty, ama- pretty amazing. I liked it. Nicole uh, shared parts of her story, and I loved what she shared. She talked about her sons, and she said, My hope for this church, for Forefront Church, is that this community breaks the generational curse upon black boys. That my boys would be able to actually truly be children in a place like this where there are more than one ethnicity. Right? That's what she said, and she, I, you know, she's holding us accountable to that. But the fact that there is that generational curse, that's colonization. That's it right there. It's happening right here. I think about my wife who is of Indian origin and is told was told over and over again that Christianity that her Christianity and her Indian tradition they weren't compatible with one another and so the bright colors and the icons and the statues and the beauty of India right that that is actually a tool that Satan uses to get to you because spiritual warfare is real and if you uh, want to stay away from evil and Satan then get rid of those icons and those bright colors and those statues and everything else because it, it, it looks it's too close to Hinduism and we don't want that right and so my wife is told that she's not a good Christian Unless she forsakes that part of her culture and heritage. That is colonization. I love our church. I love the way we worship. And so this is not a knock on our church, but it's to get us thinking. Uh, I love the song Oceans. I think it's a good song. My daughter sang Oceans last week, y'all. That was pretty good. (laughs) And I love that song. But Here's the other thing about this church. There are times when we'll sing songs uh, that have black gospel liberation theology or we'll sing Korean hymns or we'll sing songs inspired by Latinx tradition and inevitably and invariably people come up to me and they're like, hey, can't we just sing songs like Oceans? That song's really hard to sing. Well, you know why it's really hard to sing? It's really hard to learn because we have not made it as important as a song like Oceans to sing. We've decided that there's a hierarchy in the way the music works, and the way that music works, it's easier to sing something that comes from Western culture and it's a little bit simpler, right? And I'm not a musician, but musicians will even tell you, well, this is very simple. That's why we do it. Right? <laughs> That's colonization. That's colonialization. And the truth of the matter is it's in, it pervades not only aspects that are happening outside right there, but it's, in, it's, it's, it's happening here in our church. And so, so while we have this anti-racist value This is a value that, and no pun intended, I'm sorry, we need to keep on the forefront. It needs to be in our consciousness. It needs to make us uncomfortable. It needs to be the thing that we continue to work toward and talk about it. And so the way that we can go about doing that, first and foremost, is changing the lens in which we read Scripture. Because the truth of the matter is, white people, we do not corner the market on the way Scripture is read. We just don't. And we also don't corner the market on colonization either. It's for anybody that wants to make a profit at the expense of somebody else. Why people like to take credit for a lot. <laughs> I think we changed the way we read scripture. You know, I ran into this blog post while I was researching for this, and it's by this pastor named David Swanson, who's a wonderful pastor in Chicago, and he brought something to my attention that, that kind of floored me at the time. I've, you know, I've I, I taken all my theology courses and I have the theological training and I have mentors who have taught me and, and who pushed me forward and all the rest. And, and I, I talk about the Babylonian Empire and how they took over Israel. And I talk about it often here at this church. It was a seminal moment in the history of Israel. And I talk about it all the time, that the reason that, that the people in Israel believed that they were taken over, the reason they believed that is because they worshipped other gods. And that always made sense to me. Great. They worshipped other gods. They were taken over. And then right in front of my face, I read Jeremiah 34. And right in front of my face, it says this. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free their Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Hebrew in bondage. So all the officials and people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. But afterward, they changed their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now, I've now proclaimed freedom for you, declares the Lord. And freedom is to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. Years and years and years. In fact, about 15 years I've been doing this theological training. This is the first time I ever came across the idea that people being uh, kept in slavery, kept in bondage, is what gets God upset and gets them taken over by the Babylonian Empire because we don't want to talk about that part of Christianity. It's easier to say, well, they were worshipping other gods, right? And I'm shocked by the fact that I just learned this. It's disappointing. We need to change the lens in which we view Scripture. Now, how do we change the lens in which we view Scripture? Well, I think this. We have a liberating God. This is good news. We have a liberating God who asks us to confront every kind of captivity that we see on earth, and says, hey, there is divine freedom in it. That's what we get to do. And so here's the deal, church. I I just told you at the beginning of this message that when we started this anti-racist value that people walked out the door, we get to change the narrative today. We get to start changing it today. We get to be a church that starting today gets to say, oh, and our church grew and our community grew and people started volunteering and people gave to it and people committed to it because they are an anti-racist church, not in spite of the fact. We get to change the narrative by saying that we have a liberating God who asks us to confront every earthly captivity and bring about divine freedom. It starts, by the way, we read, we read, we read, we read Scripture. We read Scripture. <laughs> the struggle's real. So, yeah. So, when, when Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm here to set the captives free, and I'm proclaiming the, the good news of God, or the good news of the word of the Lord, and Jesus uses freedom language, instead of, you know, it, it, it makes sense if we read through a new lens, right? So, we look and we say, well, Jesus is talking to Galilean peasants, there are people who had to give 80% of their money to the Roman Empire. There are people who probably saw family members killed and arrested. What if Jesus isn't talking to the people and the people are going, oh, Jesus is talking about my spiritual self? That's nice. Oh, Jesus is talking about my heart. There's freedom in my heart now. That's nice. Oh, you know, Jesus is talking about when I get to heaven. I can't wait for that day. No. If we're reading it through a new lens, we go, Jesus is speaking to a people who are desperate to be free. And Jesus was bringing freedom to them. Real freedom. Literal freedom. Physical freedom. What if we started to read that way and all of a sudden the gospel message is not so much about my heart and about going to heaven, but it's about changing systems right now here on earth. Let's change the way we read scripture. Our small groups, our worship spaces, we can continue to grow by allowing them to be safe places for decolonization. There's too many times where we sit in a small group or in this church service, and and obviously I'm a white privileged male, I get that, right? But there are too many times we sit here and and, and we still have this this dominant narrative. And it's a dominant narrative that doesn't create safe spaces for other stories and other experiences and other ways in which cultures and traditions have shaped our lives. What if we as a church, we start to change that? What if we bring those colors and those icons back from India that allow us to to celebrate a little bit more the goodness of God, not so much in a white Western way, but in all-encompassing, Worldly way, can we do that in our church can we do that in our small groups during the week can we create that safe space if we can then we are a part of the liberating freedom we're a part of the God who says you know what confront this captivity and bring divine freedom to it we get to do that we get to change it after service everybody I have to do a wedding as Juby said but everybody else, go to the Brooklyn Museum. We have a Brooklyn Museum group thing. We're all going to go. We're going to go eat lunch, and then we're going to go check out the museum. Bree is leading the charge. Bree's back there, by the way. Bree, raise your hand. This is a, un, this is a shameless plug, right? <laughs> Every, everybody go. Follow Bree to the Brooklyn Museum. And what if when we go to the Brooklyn Museum, instead of just taking in art and going, hmm, that's pretty. What if we sit there and we go, you know, where is this art coming from? And what is, it, what is this anti-colonial art? It's coming from other places. This is wonderful. And, and what if, instead of going, well, that's pretty, what if we're like, ooh, this makes me indignant, or this makes me angry, or this makes me want to repent, this makes me want to change something? And what if we saw art that way? Because, like I said, colonization happens throughout the whole city and decolonization happens throughout the whole city. What if you saw art this way, and I encourage you all to go and see it that way? Right? That is being a part of the liberating God who asks us to confront all captivity and brings about divine freedom. We can change the narrative. We can be the church that brings in a new iteration of Christianity for what? Next five hundred years. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I gotta say, though, first service, they all knew it, not just some of y'all. <laughs> we can be that church. I like, Truly, I believe this. We can be anti-racist, and we're not there yet but we get a chance to start. So what does decolonization look like? What ways can we walk out these doors today and say, you know what? God is asking me to confront captivity that we see here and God is asking me to bring divine freedom. Can we do it? Can we be uncomfortable? Can we say that that is the gospel message? And I want to end with an invitation. It's an invitation from David Swanson. I'm reading it. I'm stealing it from him completely. He doesn't even know but it's an invitation that I think is important for for our church and here's how it goes it says the liberating god is proclaiming freedom over the desperate migrant and the landless refugee will we join that god The liberating God is proclaiming freedom over every child whose future is assumed to be written by underfunded schools and intentionally segregated neighborhoods. Will we join that God? The liberating God is proclaiming freedom over sisters and brothers whose ancestors built this nation's wealth with their blood and bodies. Will we join that God? The liberating God is proclaiming freedom over every single place of captivity, over every single dehumanized image-bearer of the holy God. Do we... Can we join that God? And today this God sings songs of salvation and freedom and deliverance over this captive world. Will we join that God? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, stir in us a new movement. Stir in us a calling. stirring us courage to be compelled by the gospel message of Jesus Christ to set others free. And God, for those of us in this room right now who are not free, For those of us in this room who are marginalized, who are hurt, Lord, we pray that not only is space created, but systems are broken that allow for equity, allow it to start here with us. And God, I thank you for Jesus Christ who shows us what freedom looks like over and over and the grace that comes when we get freedom wrong. So I pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.